If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did religious divides affect Elizabethan England? Why were some bears treated like celebrities in London? And what was the downside of using a golden toothpick? Well, in the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, we'll answer all of these questions and more as we tackle the Elizabethan era. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, put your questions on the period to the historian Nicola Tallis. So Nicola, I thought um, it would be good to start off with a scene-setting question. Uh, And this one comes from Google, and it is, who were the Elizabethans? Well, put very simply, the Elizabethans were those who lived through the reign of the last of the Tudor monarchs, Elizabeth I, in what is often considered to be a Renaissance age, in an age in which really literature flourished, and an age that really inspired national pride in the Elizabethan people. And again, just another contextual question, who reigned before the Elizabethans? So as I mentioned, Elizabeth was the last monarch of the Tudor dynasty and the Tudor dynasty had begun in 1485 when Elizabeth's grandfather, Henry VII, 
won his crown at the Battle of Bosworth. And at Bosworth, Richard III, so the last Plantagenet king, had been killed, thus signalling the beginning of this new Tudor era. So immediately before uh, Elizabeth, we have Mary, don't we? Yeah, so we've got Mary. Um, so yeah, just to just to um, just to make it clearer, we've got uh, yeah Henry the Seventh, who reigns from fourteen eighty five to fifteen o nine, and then Elizabeth's father Henry the Eighth, who reigns from fifteen o nine to fifteen forty seven. We've then got Elizabeth's half brother Edward the Sixth, who reigns from fifteen forty seven to fifteen fifty three. And then um, controversially, depends on whether you class Lady Jane Grey as a monarch or not. I do. So you've got her 13-day reign in 1553. And then, yeah, Elizabeth's half-sister, Mary, from uh, 1553 to 1558. So drilling down a bit more into the Elizabethan era, we've got a question from Google, which is, how was Elizabethan society structured? Well, of course, you have Queen Elizabeth at the top, and she was followed by the nobility. You then got the gentry, which consists of the knights, squires, and gentlemen of the realm, all of whom are generally wealthy enough that they didn't have to work. Um, you've then got the yeomanry, who, or the middle class, who, who you know, also lived relatively comfortably. And then there's the poor, so those who faced the daily struggles to survive. Um, and this really became a real problem during the later years of Elizabeth I's reign. And there were, you know, numerous reasons for this, including an increase in the population, inflation, uh, bad harvests. And so in 1601... Um, a poor law which formalised former acts came into being and and this aims to provide some relief for those lower levels of society. We've got, as you might expect, quite a lot of questions about Elizabeth I, which I will get to later on. Uh, But just before we delve into the Queen herself, I was wondering if you could tell us what did Elizabethans think about the world? So the Elizabethans were living through a time of extraordinary change where exploration was rife, scientific developments were challenging long-standing traditional beliefs. So it was a really exciting time, but also one that was a bit daunting. Um, you've got the voyages of discovery, which were in full swing. So people know about the new world and the Americas at this point, And people were interested in the discoveries that were being made overseas. Um, so, you know, it's an age of adventure and exploration. You've got Sir Francis Drake circumnavigating the globe, which he sets off to do in 1577. Um, you've got Walter Raleigh founding the first English colony named Virginia in Elizabeth's honour and trade is really flourishing. So all of these things are helping to make England great and Elizabeth's people are living through and witnessing to some extent all of this. Um, So the next batch of questions we have are concerned with Elizabeth herself, but I actually just want to circle back on one of the figures you mentioned in your last answer, which is Walter Raleigh. Um, And Jean via Twitter has asked us, did Walter Raleigh really put his cape down over a puddle? Would you mind just briefly explaining what this story is before delving into whether it's true or not? (laughs) 
Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it is a great story um, of the gallant Sir Walter Raleigh laying his cloak across a puddle in order to keep Queen Elizabeth's delicate feet dry. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really great story. It shows Raleigh's uh, chivalrous side and I think in many ways is in keeping with what we know about his character. Um, how true is it? <laughs> it's, it's well, we let's put it this way. The first record of it, or the first, the story first appears 80 years later in Thomas Fuller's History of the Worthies of England, and it's not recorded in any earlier source. So it's a nice story, but probably unlikely to be true, unfortunately. Oh, it's always the way, isn't it, when you get such a sweet story <laughs> like that. Um, I know. <laughs> so circling back to Elizabeth herself then, we have had quite a few questions come in about how um, the subjects viewed Elizabeth. So ITK has asked, what did people actually think about Elizabeth? And Jessica Roberts has asked, what did ordinary people think about having a female ruler? Yeah, so what do people actually think about Elizabeth? So for the most part, Elizabeth was extremely popular and well-loved by her subjects, especially at the beginning of her reign. So her, her accession was greeted with the heartfelt love and enthusiasm of many of her subjects. So they liked the fact that she was young. Um, like her father, she had the common touch and she really engaged with her people. And we can see this during the procession that took place prior to her coronation, when she took the time to really engage in the pageants that were staged in her honour on the streets of London. Um, so Elizabeth really liked to think of herself as being married to her people. And as I say, she she actively engaged with people throughout her reign. So generally, she's pretty popular throughout the reign. And she was also considered to be quite an accessible monarch because, you know, she went out most summers on her summer progresses that took her to various parts of her realm. And these really gave her subjects an opportunity to, to see her and to admire her. And again, you know, for her to extend this common touch. Um, and her popularity, again, really soars after the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. So, of course, she's not liked by everyone. And there are plots at various points in her reign to unseat her, some involving her own subjects. And equally, I think what's important to say is that there were those close to her who could on occasion feel the sharp end of her tongue. Um, so we know that she was very close to uh, her, her cousin, Catherine Knowles, who became one of the most important women in her bedchamber when Elizabeth became queen. According to the account of Catherine's husband, Francis Knowles, um, on occasion, Elizabeth was known to make Catherine weep for unkindness to the extent that he declared that they were prepared to, to leave court altogether and live quietly in the country, but, um, but this never happened. So, you know, she, she was generally very popular, but yeah, not everybody liked her. 
And in regards to what did ordinary people think about having a female ruler, um, the idea of female rule was still a new one at the time of Elizabeth's accession. Um, And as people only had the example of the five-year reign of Elizabeth's half-sister, Mary, to draw from, um, there weren't necessarily many happy memories um, of this because, you know, um, Mary's reign... There had been um, there had been problems there, and life at the time that Elizabeth came to the throne also wasn't easy for many of her subjects. The country was poor, and living conditions weren't all that good for for some people. So, although as queen, people looked towards Elizabeth to try and improve things, in reality because she was a woman, they didn't hold out much hope that she'd actually be successful at doing so. In that answer, you talked about her being married to her people, married to her country, and obviously Elizabeth famously never married. We have had a few questions about this. Um, One from Todd Patton, who asks, what did everyday people think about Elizabeth's choice not to marry and have children? Were they supportive or were they fearful of the uncertainty of the succession? Well, when Elizabeth succeeded to the throne, the thought that she might not marry wasn't even a consideration. It was fully expected that she would marry by everyone. And in February 1559, so just a couple of months after her accession, the Commons delivered a petition to the Queen in which they asked her to take a husband as soon as possible. Um, So the succession was an extremely delicate issue. And should Elizabeth die, there were several possible candidates. So it was considered of the utmost importance and necessity for her to marry, although nobody could agree who her husband ought to be. And as we know, although she toyed with the idea of marriage, she never took a husband. And I think that her subjects came to accept this. So her union with her subjects was very strong. It was actually, I'd go so far as to say it was unique, really. Um, And certainly by the 1570s, many of her advisors had privately accepted that Elizabeth wasn't going to marry or indeed name a successor Um, And so the succession, of course, was pretty much an open question and remained so throughout her reign. So I think I think it's it's generally it's hard to to ascertain exactly what the ordinary folk in Elizabeth's realm would have felt about her, her not marrying. But I think even though to begin with, they expected her to do so, they did eventually come to accept her decision. And Jessica Roberts has quite an interesting question related to this idea of Elizabeth marrying. Um, She wants to know, what obstacles would Elizabeth have faced if she had married? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and there are all sorts, really. So um, one of the obvious ones is potentially, I think, safely navigating childbirth, had she conceived. Um, Elizabeth knew that this could be dangerous and potentially fatal because we have to remember of course that she had also lost two of her stepmothers in the process of childbirth so Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr so she had witnessed firsthand what the consequences of marriage could potentially be 
Um, she also had to consider choosing a husband who wouldn't compromise her own power or the welfare of her country. And again, she'd witnessed firsthand during the reign of her half-sister how Mary's husband, Philip of Spain, had dragged England into his foreign wars. So nobody wanted that again. And England, quite frankly, couldn't afford for that to happen again. So equally, if Elizabeth chose an English husband who might be suitable would this be problematic in terms of elevating a subject to higher rank and thus cause discord? So there were all sorts of obstacles that she would have had to contend with if she had chosen to marry. So you've hinted at the answer to this next question in some of your previous answers. Um, I think it'd be good to really drill down into it. And it's a question that Joe Pierce has asked. And she says, why did Elizabeth see her female relatives as threats and why were they kept under such close scrutiny? Well, it's important to say that she didn't see all of her female relatives as threats. So a lot of her maternal female relatives were really close to her and given privileged positions at her court. And I've already mentioned Catherine Knowles and indeed her daughter, uh, Latisse Knowles, who's the subject of my second book, For a Time. So these are maternal um, relatives and, and these stayed close to her. So it was her paternal female relatives that were the problem. And this was because unlike those on the maternal side, they were potential claimants to the throne. And these came in the form of Mary, Queen of Scots, who, you know, as we know, was the focus for opposition and rebellion throughout the course of Elizabeth's reign. And also the Grey sisters, so the eldest of which, Jane, had been executed by Mary I in the aftermath of her short reign. Um, and Elizabeth was none too fond of Jane's younger sisters, Catherine and Mary, particularly when Catherine married in secret without her consent and subsequently gave birth not just to one son, but to two, the second while she was imprisoned in the tower. And so all of these women were viewed by Elizabeth as potential rivals because they too had royal blood and you know they too therefore were potential claimants for the throne. So looking at another Tudor monarch, Ali on Twitter asks, how did the Elizabethans remember Henry VIII? Was it out of sight and out of mind or did they reference him and remember significant days in his life? Henry had definitely made an impression and he was remembered throughout the reigns of all of his children. And we know that Elizabeth in particular revered him and his memory. And by her, by the time that she came to reign, he was remembered as great Harry who had saved England from the folds of the Catholic Church in Rome. So, you know, this was really his, his legacy and his posterity. But everything else that he'd done, you know, including executing his wives, executing uh, numbers of his subjects, this seemed to have been either completely forgotten or overlooked. That's so interesting because obviously that's one of the main things we remember him for now. I find it... Um... I know, <laughs> Very strange, especially for Elizabeth. I would always have assumed that she would have been a bit antagonistic towards him with the death of her mother. 
No, it's interesting. She always identified herself with her father publicly, at least anyway. So, uh, so yeah, at least in public, she was, she was keen to be remembered as great Harry's daughter. Mm, very intriguing. Um, so we've had a couple of questions about politics um, and both of them are to do with propaganda. So I'm going to read both of them at once so you can delve into this theme. One of them is from Olivia Newbury. And she says, what propaganda existed in the Elizabethan era and what influenced Elizabethans? And then Lee Pewterbaugh has a slightly more specialist question. And they ask, how much of the story about Bloody Mary in particular was propaganda? Okay, so returning to the first question, propaganda was absolutely rife in Elizabethan England. And much of this centred around the Queen herself. So I mentioned the fact that most summers Elizabeth went on a summer progress which allowed her people to see their queen. Um, But this also gave her an opportunity to keep an eye on her nobles. And what's interesting is that she would often order accounts of her progresses to be published so that her subjects could read about what she'd been up to. And this was hugely popular. And as the queen controlled printing... This was a way that she could also control what her subjects read. And her image was also really carefully controlled. Um, So her portraits always showed her as, you know, this beautiful and ageless queen. And this really added to the Gloriana myth that surrounds her. She was really the mistress of public relations. And this is something that's clearly conveyed in many of her propaganda portraits that often contained messages of her purity and of her power. Um, So the famous Armada portrait is a really good example of this because there are all sorts of allusions in it to Elizabeth's power and her position as, you know, defender of her realm and of the might of England. So so it's a really, really interesting uh, form of propaganda there. In regards to the story about Bloody Mary, and it's true that on her orders, nearly 300 Protestants were burned at the stake. So we know this. But her reputation as being Bloody Mary is largely the product of Elizabethan propaganda. And it's largely thanks to John Fox's Acts and Monuments, or the Book of Martyrs, as it became known in particular, uh, which charted the course of the burnings throughout Mary's reign. And what's interesting is that Elizabeth herself didn't burn Catholics, but there were nearly 200 that were hung, drawn and quartered throughout her reign. Um, Now, during the reign of Elizabeth, the historian William Camden would write that Mary's days have been ill spoken of by reason of the barbarous cruelty of the bishops who with a most sad spectacle in all places polluted England by burning Protestants alive. What's interesting about Camden's statement is that he didn't actually attribute the blame for the atrocities directly to Mary, but rather her advisers. Um, And there's been a lot of scholarship on Mary and her reign recently, which has shown her in a different light. Um, And my own view is that if it hadn't been for Fox, I think that she may have been remembered far more sympathetically. And we've got a question from Ado Mohammed, which ties in very well to the 
um, religious divisions of the time, which is how deep was the Catholic and Protestant divide during this period, especially for the ordinary people? Well, after a decade of religious turmoil, some kind of settlement on the issue of religion was much needed at the time of Elizabeth's succession. And this is one of the first things that Elizabeth sought to do. Um, So a settlement in 1559 established Protestantism as the official religion in England and conferred upon Elizabeth the title of Supreme Governor of the Church, unlike her father, who'd been Supreme Head of the Church. And the Book of Prayer, which had been introduced in Edward VI's reign, was also re-established. Although, interestingly, there were some modifications that were made to try and appease Catholics as well, because Elizabeth was quite keen to be seen to be taking a middle ground. Um, Unfortunately, this settlement didn't end the disputes over religion. Someone, I think, was always going to be unhappy one way or another. But as Elizabeth's reign progressed, most people did gradually conform with the arrangements that were put in place, Uh, although it's important to say that not everybody conformed. So during the settlement, those who refused to attend Church of England services, who were known as recusants, were, um, were, were fined. And later in the 1580s, the fines increased. Um, and, you know, there were also a number of Catholic plots, which I think I mentioned earlier, against Elizabeth. So the divide is something that Elizabeth tried to solve, but that unfortunately is always there. And we've got another question to do with religion and belief in the period, this time from Google, which is, why did the Elizabethans believe in witches and witchcraft? Yeah, it's a great question. And really, people at this time were hugely superstitious. And equally, when things went wrong in everyday life, you know, so for example, the harvest failed, or perhaps somebody died unexpectedly, or, you know, maybe a house was burnt down, you know, these kinds of events for which there wasn't always an uh, an easy answer or an obvious explanation. People wanted somebody to blame. And so where did they look? Where did they turn and think of? It was witches. And there was hysteria across Europe at this time, but it didn't fully hit England until Elizabeth's reign. Um, And in 1563, the Witchcraft Act was implemented, whereby steps could be taken against those who were accused of being witches. So generally, not always, but generally speaking, these were old women who were often single. And by hunting these people down, people believed that, you know, that this would bring an end to to all of these um, these catastrophes that had happened in their lives. So um, in total during Elizabeth's reign, I, I think it's something like over 200 women and, and 23 men are accused of witchcraft. So again, there's, there's also this kind of bias towards who a witch might be. So we've had a couple of questions to do with women and the first is a popular search query on Google which is what was the role of women in Elizabethan society? 
women were considered to be very much subservient to either their fathers or their husbands, perhaps with the exception of widows who had more freedom over their own lives. So the role of women was therefore greatly limited and lay very much within the domestic sphere. Uh, So they were chiefly expected to fulfill the roles of wives and mothers. At this time, even though Elizabeth was on the throne, the women were still considered to be the weaker sex. And although there were many women in the period who were receiving a high standard of education, including famously Elizabeth herself, who's very well educated, women weren't allowed to have their own professions as such. So although they could become maids or work as cooks, the emphasis still lay in their domestic role. But they were expected to have skills and accomplishments. So things like being able to sew, being able to run a household, being able to read, being able to paint, all in the hopes primarily of achieving a successful marriage. What's interesting is that by the end of Elizabeth's reign in 1603, only around 10% of the female population were literate. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The bears that were used in these baitings were um, often given nicknames. And so they were almost like these local celebrities that became really, really well known to Londoners. I guess in a similar way to, um, I don't know, pop stars and things today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. 
Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So you touched on this in your last answer, but Annette Campbell wanted to know, were Elizabethan women treated differently with a female monarch on the throne? Or was Elizabeth seen as some kind of anomaly with her heart and stomach of a king, the only reason she was fit to rule? Elizabeth herself, although obviously a woman, fully recognised that she was living in a man's world. And so not a lot changed for women generally. What's interesting to consider, though, is those around Elizabeth. So the women who served her at court, and they immediately found themselves, or many of them immediately found themselves in a different situation by reason of the Queen's gender. So suddenly... They were being approached by ambassadors, dignitaries, other courtiers in order to seek favours from the Queen. And this gave them an influence that they hadn't really had before. And they were often well rewarded for their services. Um, So Elizabeth had made it clear, though, that she didn't expect her ladies to meddle in politics, for example. But I think it's, it's clear that they certainly had more power in the Queen's domestic sphere. But of course, this didn't apply to all women, only those who were privileged enough to be given a place in Elizabeth's household, I suppose. So switching tack, we've had quite a few questions come in to do with health and hygiene in the period. Um, And we've had one from Jane Louise Porter, who asks, what diseases would Elizabethans most likely have died of? Well, disease was rife in Elizabethan England, but probably none were as fearful or indeed as constant a threat as the plague. And there are various outbreaks of this across Elizabeth's reign. And the one that took hold during 1592 to 1593, um, in response to this, London's theatres were actually closed in order to try and contain the spread of it. So plague is most certainly at the forefront of many people's minds in terms of disease. And I would say after that, there is smallpox to consider, which was also greatly feared. And Elizabeth herself contracted this disease in 1562 when she was 29 um, and she was resident at Hampton Court. And, you know, as we know, she survived this. And then you've got things like malaria and typhus and syphilis. And at the root of these, uh, a lack of sanitation is is to blame. So lack of sanitation led to disease. And as I say, that yeah, that was rife in the country. And Holly wanted to know, how did the Elizabethans deal with more taboo subjects such as menstruation? It's not something that we have a great deal of information on. We know that periods were referred to as courses. And in terms of sanitary items, rags were most commonly used as, you know, basically a a makeshift kind of tampon or or sanitary item. Although we don't know exactly how these would have been kept in place either. Um, You quite often see references to material that may have been used for this reason popping up in the accounts of Elizabeth when she was a princess, although it's it's not directly referred to in this way. But with the regularity with which these things are being purchased, it's 
I don't know, I'd say a fairly safe bet that that's what they were being bought for. Next up, we've got quite a niche question from Google, which is, why did they encourage some people to sleep standing up or sitting up? Yeah, this is something I'm not quite sure myself if this is a myth or if this is something that actually happened. But the, the new, there are numerous stories about this. And the one that I hear most commonly is that the only time that you lay down was when you were in your coffin. And again, I think that comes back to superstitions and and the fact that it was a very superstitious age. So like I say, I'm not 100% sure convinced of the truth of that one, but that's something that I've heard. Um, So looking at hygiene now, Barry Morgan wants to know what were their hygiene habits? And this feeds into a question which is popular on Google, which is how often did the Elizabethans bathe? So what were the hygiene habits of the Elizabethans? Well, Elizabeth I's godson, Sir John Harrington, was responsible for inventing the first flushing water closet or toilet in 1596. But generally, as there was no sewage system, for the wealthier, you'd have a closed stall, which was basically a padded box or a chamber pot for the poorer, Um, Or indeed, it wasn't uncommon, actually, to see men urinating in the streets either. Um, Rags would often be used as toilet paper. In terms of other things, you might possibly comb your hair. And we know that there were some um, who made attempts to clean their teeth with wooden toothpicks for the poor or gold for the rich. So incidentally, even though, you know, the the rich were using the gold toothpicks. These were actually doing more damage than the wooden ones used by the poor. Um, and, you know, you might also clean your teeth with something like a concoction of burnt rosemary wood. Um, Elizabeth I herself is known to have owned tooth cloths with which she she rubbed her teeth. And we also know that people were using herbs which they chewed in order to sweeten their breath. Uh, Catherine Parr, a bit before Elizabeth, of course, we know that she was ordering lozenges in order to keep her breath sweet. And in terms of how often the Elizabethans bathed, so let's consider how important hygiene is to us today, as in, you know, it's hugely important. But if you were a lower class Elizabethan, bathing regularly really wasn't an option So the lower classes might potentially bathe a few times a year if they had the opportunity to. Uh, But generally, clothes were relied upon to soak up all of the smells and and all of the sweat. For the nobility, they could probably bathe once every couple of weeks. And we know that there's a definite interest in cleanliness at this time because there are recipes for soap that you find in Elizabethan household instruction manuals. So, you know, people obviously are interested in keeping themselves clean. Elizabeth herself had baths in all of her palaces. And, you know, she also once famously quipped that she bathed once a month, whether she needed to or not. Wow, real commitment to cleanliness there. Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I was just wondering, why were the gold toothpicks more damaging? I think just because it's it's metal and, you know, if you're using those long term, and I think 
I think they can potentially, I th- well, this is what I assume is that they're just doing a bit more damage than, than the wooden ones. Ooh, I'm so glad that we have uh, advanced in cl- cleaning our teeth. That doesn't sound like it'd be very pleasant. I know, we've got, got dental floss and all sorts these days. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a couple of questions sent in um, to do with food. The first one is another popular question on Google, which is, what did Elizabethans eat? The wealthier you were, unsurprisingly, the more options became available to you. So there'd be a variety of meats and fish, which included all the obvious ones, beef and lamb and chicken, goose, eel was quite popular, pike was quite popular, and oysters were also commonly to be found on um, noble menus. Whilst bread was the staple food for the poor, and this could be eaten with cheese, butter or pottage um but you generally see that the poor would eat white meats like chicken uh, because they couldn't generally afford um red meat which was more expensive fruit and vegetables were also available but interestingly the rich didn't tend to eat lots of vegetables it was mostly considered to be a poor man's food um And fruit would often appear baked in pies and tarts as opposed to eaten raw, I suppose you would say. And in terms of drinking, water was considered to be unsafe to drink. So instead, ale and wine would have been the the staple drinks. And Anna Martin had a question um, to do with sugar in particular. So she asks... We know that Elizabeth could afford her sweet tooth and that the sugar trade was extremely lucrative, but were sugar and sweets readily available and affordable to the general population? No, absolutely not. Sugar was a luxury ingredient that was only affordable for the wealthiest orders of society, mostly because it had to be imported. So white sugar came from Madeira. So the rich were very, very fond of it and sugary dishes often featured in banquets, for example. But no, it wasn't yet affordable for those among the lower classes. So moving on now to look at entertainment, one of the popular questions on Google is what did the Elizabethans do for entertainment? Um, And this was also asked in another form by one of our listeners, LJ, who says, what were their interests and hobbies? Yeah, I mean, leisure was a hugely important part of Elizabethan life for all classes, but there were some differences between the types of entertainment that were available to different levels of society. Um, This one sounds like a really obvious one, but I I think it's a good place to start. And in terms of entertainment, what better than to laugh? (laughs) And many people, including Queen Elizabeth, employed jesters or fools whose job it was to entertain them. And uh, there's one in particular, an Italian fool named Monaco, hopefully I've pronounced that right, who was employed by Elizabeth. And he was even mentioned in Shakespeare's Love's Labour's Lost. Um, So laughing, I think it was a very, very important part of Elizabethan entertainment. Drinking, of course, was always popular, as was gambling. So um, depending on which class you fell into, you might enjoy placing bets on games of chess and cards um, or on wrestling, the outcome of a wrestling match. Archery was popular. Football was very popular, although it was a very 
different game to today uh, because you could pick up the ball and run with it in the Elizabethan times. Bowling, jugglers, fairs, um, music and dancing. So most nobles were expected to play an instrument whilst low, for the lower classes, you see instruments such as fiddles and bagpipes featuring more heavily. Um, what I always find really fascinating as well is that in 1567, there was even an attempt at a lottery. So ticket holders were promised a, a prize in, in the form of money and also freedom from arrest for all crimes other than murder, felonies, piracy or treason. But unfortunately, it was something that never took off. More's the pity. <laughs> oh, wow. That is um, quite a unique <laughs> prize. We've got another question to do with entertainment that also comes from Google, which is, did the Elizabethans like to watch any cruel animal sports? And what were they? Yeah, I, I always find this difficult to, to think about and to talk about. It's, it's weird, but it's very sad. But yes, they did. Um, unfortunately, blood sports were very popular with many, including the Queen. And these included cockfighting and baiting, which often took place on London's South Bank. Dogs against horses, sometimes with monkey riders for the dogs to bite, featured heavily and also bears against the famous English mastiffs. So often um, the bears would have their teeth broken beforehand so that they couldn't bite the dogs. And you will also often see dogs against bulls. So it was all very brutal. Um, but another sort of interesting fact or sideline there also is that um, the bears that were used in these baitings were um, often given nicknames and so they were almost like these local celebrities that became really really well known to Londoners I guess in a similar way to um, I don't know pop stars and things today so yeah quite interesting. We've got a bit more of a uplifting question next which is why was theatre important to the Elizabethans? Yeah, so this was the great age of theatre and the first theatre in England was built by James Burbage in 1576 in Shoreditch and this was excitingly called the theatre <laughs> and they begin to pop up all over London and there was a growth in education during Elizabeth's reign which meant that educated men who wrote plays were given the opportunity to showcase their work in this medium. So there's not only, of course, William Shakespeare, but also Christopher Marlowe, Ben Johnson, and Thomas Middleton, to name just a few. And the great thing about the theatre was it provided entertainment that could be enjoyed by all levels of society. So the poor were included in this as well. And for them, tickets to attend a performance at the theatre cost a penny for them to stand Whilst, of course, the wealthier people, as you would expect, they paid for cushioned seats. And the theatre was also a really clever form of spreading ideas because it appealed to so many people. And we see this in 1601 when the Earl of Essex um, was planning to, or well, he did, when the Earl of Essex rebelled against Elizabeth I and he ordered a performance of Richard II to be performed at the Globe to rouse the people, um, although fortunately for Elizabeth it didn't work. 
And, you know, it also provided escapism and entertainment to everyone. So, um, you know, it it was just a, a really accessible form of entertainment that everybody could participate in. So moving on to clothing, again from Google, we've got the question, what did Elizabethans wear? And also, why did the Elizabethans wear ruffs? Fashion becomes quite iconic during this period. And for women, it does change a bit over the course of Elizabeth's reign. So for women, getting dressed was always a process because your outfit would be made up of many different components There would be a wide and full skirt, so that was the the popular fashion during this time. And above that, there would be a bodice with a square neckline, which was popular. And then you'd have to have your sleeves, which would have to be attached. And often these were slashed. That was the popular style generally in the Elizabethan period. And then costumes were often covered in embroidery and jewels as well. So for men, they wore doublets that had padded shoulders and then breeches, which often resembled balloons because of their puffy shape. And these would be worn over hose, so kind of like tights, which were used to cover the legs. And so ruffs, of course, are the piece of clothing that were most associated with the Elizabethans and they were unisex items as well. And they started off being quite simple in design, so like a simple frill. But as the decades of the Elizabethan reign passed, they became increasingly elaborate and were often starched as well. And they were also luxury items, sometimes trimmed with lace, which was extremely expensive. And this therefore made them status symbols. So they were really a fashion statement, particularly for the wealthiest in society. Bo Crader on Twitter asks, what happened to Elizabeth I's wardrobe and jewels when she died? That's such a good question. We know that by the time that Elizabeth died, she'd amassed a huge collection of both clothes and jewels. So we know that she had 1,900 items of clothing, so absolutely massive. And these were all passed on to her successor, James the sixth of Scotland and then first of England, and um, and were all repurposed basically, or you know broken down and, and refashioned. And the same with the jewels, which again, it was a vast collection. We know that in the uh, late fifteen eighties, Elizabeth's jewel collection consisted of more than six hundred pieces. And we see what's quite interesting. We see some of these jewel pieces pop up in the inventory of. James's consort, Anne of Denmark. For example, one piece that had been owned previously by Catherine Parr, so um, a brooch or pendant fashioned like a crown, which we can then see was owned by Elizabeth. And then that appears in, in Anne's inventory as well, and she has it broken down. And I think this is something really that happens with many of Elizabeth's clothes and jewels because of the rapidity with which fashions changed many of these pieces were broken down and recycled um, and reused or they were sold off or given as gifts so there's a couple of surviving pieces of Elizabeth's jewelry today but not very much and in terms of her clothes um 
There is, of course, the 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 Bacton altar cloth, which is um, you know thought to be a piece of one of Elizabeth's dresses, but that is literally all that there is. So, taking a wider look at the period, Daniel O'Donnell wants to know how had people's quality of life changed in the Elizabethan era in comparison to, say, the start of Henry VIII's reign? In some ways, it had improved because you've got places like London, for example, which were now a huge hub for of trade. And London was, of course, England's main commercial centre. So the economy was booming and the country was now far wealthier than when it had been when Elizabeth inherited it. Um, but of course, you've still got you've still got the poor in society. And so for them, life hasn't particularly improved very much. There have been um, attempts to to try and improve life for them. As I mentioned at the beginning, the the poor laws, for example, but how effective these were is is debatable. So um, in general, for for many people, many people had become wealthy as a result of the the boom in the economy and the flourishing trade. But there were always going to be those who were left behind. The final question of the episode comes from Tritown Paddy, who says, "The Elizabethan era is often called a golden age, but is that really the case?" The idea of Elizabeth's reign as being a golden age comes about after Elizabeth's death. People didn't realise necessarily how good they had it at the time. And probably about 20 years after Elizabeth died, the cult of Elizabeth is um, revered and, and revived continually in the centuries after her death, really. And this view is one that has been questioned recently. And I think it's fair to say that in in some ways there's no real clear-cut answer. Um, It's undoubtedly a time of great change and flourishing art, literature, poetry, architecture. And by the time of Elizabeth's death in 1603, England was one of the most powerful nations in Europe. So a lot has changed in the years that Elizabeth had been on the throne. But was it all success? No, there were failures too. So I think we have to be realistic and say that, yes, Elizabeth provided strong and stable government for the most part of her reign, but it wasn't all perfect. And so in some ways, it doesn't seem right to portray it as such. That was Nicola Tallis. Her latest book is Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Matriarch, which was published in 2019 by Michael O'Mara. It's available now online and in bookstores, and you can also find the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an Edwardian crime story involving hate mail, mutilated horses and Arthur Conan Doyle. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.